The Interchange is brought to you by Smarter Grid Solutions. Smarter Grid Solutions is a leading enterprise energy management software company that operates internationally from bases in the UK and the US. Smarter Grid Solutions DERMS products, that's distributed energy resource management systems, are used by distribution utilities, energy service companies, and microgrid operators to manage grid capacity and resilience and to seamlessly integrate energy assets onto the grid and in the market. Its software already manages over 400 megawatts of distributed energy around the world, and it's saved customers over $300 million in grid upgrades. To find out more about how Smarter Grid Solutions software can integrate renewable and distributed energy into the grid and give you real control over your clean energy assets, visit info.smartergridsolutions.com interchange. And if that's a little too long for you, just click the link in the show notes. Why is it that experts are not doing as well as the data, essentially. And um, I think part of the answer comes from looking back at what are the underlying processes that are driving these trends. We've seen this before in solar photovoltaics. We've now seen it again in lithium ion batteries. Costs just keep falling faster than anyone expects them to. So why and what do we need to know to make sure that it doesn't happen again? Plus EV charging. Where do we need to deploy it? What does it have to look like? And what are its capabilities in order to get to real, true mainstream status for electric vehicles? For the week of March 29th, this is The Interchange. I'm Shail Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So I have this very distinct memory. It was sometime in 2010. And at the time I was leading a team of analysts who were focused on the solar market. We were supposed to be putting out our latest price forecast for solar modules, solar panels. At the time, solar modules cost a little over $2 a watt on average. And I remember sort of squinting at the page to see whether I thought it was really believable that prices could fall another 50%. Remember, they had already come down something like 80% to reach below a dollar, which at the time was viewed to be sort of the promised land for solar costs. Well, you know how this story played out. Here we are today with solar module prices well below 50 cents a watt, far cheaper than most expectations, and certainly cheaper than I and my team of analysts were predicting in 2010. And it wasn't some breakthrough revolutionary technology that got us here. It's been the workhorse crystalline silicon solar panel pretty much the entire time with steady incremental improvements over the course of decades. History has a tendency to repeat itself, and so it has. Our guest this week, Jessica Transick, is an associate professor at MIT's Institute for Data Systems and Society, and she published a killer article earlier this month showing quantitatively that lithium-ion batteries have been repeating history and getting cheaper faster than nearly anyone anticipated. And this matters not just because batteries are a linchpin of decarbonization, but also because it could happen again. The obvious next candidate on the docket, at least in my mind, is hydrogen electrolysis, where quote-unquote experts are saying that we might be able to reach the new promised land of dollar per kilogram green hydrogen by the end of this decade, perhaps. So let's be careful to learn the lessons of the past before we jump to conclusions about the future. 
So Jessica and I had a great conversation. We dug into our findings around battery costs um, to see what broader lessons we could learn. And we also talked about some other related and fascinating research that she's done recently to examine what it's going to take from a charging perspective and from a battery perspective to reach truly mass market electric vehicle adoption, far beyond the rates of penetration that we are seeing today. So with no further ado, here's my conversation with Jessica. Jessica, welcome. Thank you. Good to be talking with you. So we're going to cover a couple of different areas of research that you've published recently, both of which I think are fascinating. The first on battery costs and how fast they've fallen, even relative to expectations that they were already falling. And second, on what it's going to take to get to mass market electric vehicle adoption, obviously a related topic. Let's start with the battery stuff. First of all, why undertake this research on on battery costs and the rate of decline? Like, what did you feel like was missing out there in the general understanding of the world? Yeah, well, so the motivation for the work was really just to look back at trends in, in battery costs, lithium-ion battery technologies specifically. We wanted to look back at those trends. There was information out there that these technologies had improved a lot, but a lot of open questions about how quickly exactly and differences in reported trends and so forth. Oftentimes when we talk about batteries and people report things like just in the in the news or publicly about the cost of batteries, they, especially lithium ion batteries, they, they basically attach like a single number to it. This is the current cost of a lithium ion cell or pack or, or whatever it might be. And the reality is that lithium ion batteries are not monolithic. There are differences amongst the within the category that drive differences in costs and also therefore differences in historical cost trajectories. And so one of the things that I liked that you did was separate the cost trends of different types of cells and um, impacts on energy density and, and things like that. So it was the idea to just be a little bit more nuanced than what we typically see reported. Yeah. And it, it was to understand, you know, how much have costs actually fallen? We estimated that and measured that costs have fallen by 97% over the last few decades. And, you know, like understanding that number and, and, and really looking at as much data as we can and, um, trying to see like what was that actual cost decline was, was really the main motivation because that has all sorts of implications for, climate relevant technologies. But then also, as you said, yeah, trying to be a bit more nuanced and look at not just cost, but also the performance of the battery um, features that change that, you know, enable it to perform better in all sorts of mobile applications, including in electric vehicles. So we really wanted to, to get back and look at those trends and tease out these different factors. And then also, you know, I mean, the other thing to point out is that the 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 numbers, um, like the total cost change, is important. But also, we were interested in questions about what was like what was the what's called the functional form. What what kind of equation? What sort of trend did this follow? Were the cost decline actually exponential? And we were able to confirm that they were. And that's something that we've also seen in solar energy costs as well. So this is you know, one more example of a very dramatic cost decline and, and improvement trend in a clean energy technology. And we have 
a, a few examples of this now. And so that was really the motivation was to go back and see, well, what does the data actually tell us? Looking at as much data as we could find. Right. So you already mentioned the sort of headline number, which is that since battery, lithium ion batteries were introduced in the early nineties, the costs have declined like 97% overall. There's also a couple of other ways to look at it that um, you have data around. One is sort of just how fast they decline per year, which is a function of that total decline. But the other one that people talk about a lot and have used in the context of solar a lot as well is the rate of cost decline as a function of the size of the market. You talk a little bit about why that's an important metric and then what you found with regard to battery costs on that. Yeah, so this metric is is sometimes called the progress ratio or one minus this is the learning rate. And what that means is is basically it's it's a measure for with each doubling of cumulative production. So each doubling of the market size, what is the percent um, change in the technology in this case? What's the percent decline in cost? And so that's something that is useful because it gives us a measure of given a certain amount of effort that's put in and that's represented by the growth in the market size. How much return are we getting in terms of technology improvement in this case, in terms of the cost decline? And what we found for lithium ion batteries was that we saw a 20% cost decline with each doubling of uh, the cumulative market. And so you know, that's something that I think is is a useful measure as well, because unlike just looking at rates of change with time, when you look at rates of change with market size, then it gives you some sense that you could potentially even speed up or, you know, things could happen such that you would slow down progress so that we have some agency over these rates of change. And, and it sort of brings people into the picture too, I think, because those those markets represent real people and human efforts working on these technologies. Right. It's also useful as we start to think about how where costs can go in the future. Now, it's not always true that the learning rate continues to hold over time, but if it does continue to hold over time, then you can say, well, here's how much we expect the market for lithium ion batteries to grow over the next few years. And that's you know, predictable to within a certain degree of error based on how many electric vehicles we expect to hit the market and how much stationary energy storage is going to get deployed. And then that can predict if you say for every doubling of the market size, that's going to result in a 20% decline in terms of battery costs. You can sort of, you know, estimate your way toward where battery costs are going to head without having to get into the nitty gritty of like the individual elements of those cost decline. And I think the the implication of that for batteries in this case is fairly important because it is widely expected that we will see a couple more doublings of the market size in lithium ion batteries before long, particularly driven mostly by the electric vehicle market, but stationary storage to a lesser degree. So that would potentially imply that battery costs can fall a fair bit further, even than they have Thus far, you know, 97% decline is a lot, but what if it's 98.5% as of five years from now? Yeah, no, I think there is, uh, that's a really important aspect of this. And sometimes you are forced to, you know, make projections into the future and predictions. That's always hard to do. You know, it's, it's hard to say what is going to happen in the future, but 
it does seem that there's there's quite a bit of room for further improvement. And if these past trends continue as they have for the past 30 years, you know, if that trend continues, then yeah, you know, there's there's potentially quite a bit more cost decline um, that we could see in lithium ion technologies. So I think that's important. The other way that, you know, you can complement these analyses is to look at uh, limits to improvement in these technologies and to see, you know, will they hit cost floors and so forth. So those are steps in the analysis that one can take, but certainly looking at what's happened in the past and just seeing how this technology has improved over time is something that is, I think, really important for grounding those those future projections or those possible scenarios that we might think about. Yeah. So getting to the heart of the matter, for me at least, I think that the findings in your research that we've seen, a, you know, that this cost decline and particularly that learning rate, they're both, it's a faster cost decline than consensus would have predicted at basically almost any point along that journey, and probably a faster learning rate than consensus would have predicted during most points along that journey. And that's not the first time that that's happened, where we've under underestimated how fast battery costs can decline. We did the exact same thing with solar, with photovoltaics, where over and over again, people were predicting cost declines, myself included, and not quite reckoning with how fast costs could fall over the next few years. What is your sense of why this keeps happening? Why do we keep collectively underestimating the pe- the pace of cost decline of these technologies. Yeah, it's it is interesting that these expert based forecasts have tended to be more conservative and haven't predicted the very, you know, rapid growth in markets that we've seen in solar energy and wind energy and the cost declines and also um, you know, in the case of of batteries and you know, on the other hand, when you, you know, some of the, like if, if we actually use these data based forecasts, those tend to do better. So I have a couple of thoughts on, on why that could be. Why is it that experts are not doing as well as the data essentially? And, um, I think part of it's, you know, it's, it, it actually part of the answer comes from looking back at what are the underlying processes that are driving these trends. And we've looked at this in detail for solar energy. We're in the process of doing this right now for lithium ion batteries. And what you see is that there's just a great diversity of different efforts that go into improving these technologies that lead to cost declines and increasing energy densities. And it's really a process of, to the extent these are global markets, which, which they are largely for, for lithium ion battery technologies and also solar modules. There's a lot of competition that occurs among different people around the world, different companies, different research labs. And all of this leads to collectively a faster rate of improvement than any individual group probably would have been able to see on their own. So the success that we do have seen in these technologies the the underlying data and looking at the reasons why these techno- technologies have improved, it's really very clear that it wasn't due to the efforts of a few individuals. It was d- due to a diversity of efforts across, you know, companies and research groups and, and, you know, all of this together led to the improvement. So I think that's part of the reason why, to get back to your question, you know, I think that's part of the reason why 
maybe experts haven't done as well in projecting these trends is because as an individual, one may tend to think more about, you know, activities that are happening that one knows about or, or sort of may not actually consider the global scope of all the efforts that have gone into improving these technologies and sort of maybe thinking about what an individual or a group or a set of people we know have agency over. But what actually happens with these, you know, global markets and these competitive markets is that you get all sorts of people working on the problem and collectively they're able to achieve these really impressive rates of improvement. So from a practical standpoint, then the, the question, the next question to me is, is this going to happen again? And how can we learn from the past so that it doesn't? And for me, the most obvious next candidate for a technology that perhaps we are underestimating the pace of cost decline is going to be around hydrogen electrolysis, green hydrogen production, because there's a ton of attention being paid to it. It's clearly going to be scaling up from a very small base over the next few years. That's not dissimilar from solar a while ago and lithium ion more recently. And there's a host of predictions right now that say that, you know, the promised land, which in the case of green hydrogen is often cited to be something like a dollar per kilogram levelized is somewhere out around 2030, like, you know, relatively distant future. And so I guess my question is, what are the, what are the things that we can look out for at this stage in a cost decline for a given technology that might indicate to us that we are headed down the same path of underestimating the pace of cost decline that could happen? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And of course, with newer technologies where you have very few data points, it's hard to make a database forecast. But there are a couple of things that, a couple of approaches we can use. I mean, one is to look at the technologies that have improved more quickly and some of their characteristics. And what we see with, you know, the example of, of, of solar energy, photovoltaics, and also lithium ion battery technologies is that a lot of the cost decline came from the components of these systems that were, um, that are assembled in, in manufacturing plants that can be mass manufactured. And so to the extent with newer technologies, they can be mass manufactured, or you could maybe see standardization, even if they're not mass manufactured, if we can standardize construction processes, then we may be able to see similar rates of cost decline. So that's one kind of technology feature we can look out for and thinking about will a technology improve more quickly or more slowly. And you mentioned hydrogen. I would say some components of that technology can be mass manufactured and then others are cost components that are incurred, are incurred in the field. And so their standardization may be really important. And then the other thing is to track the data, you know, and, and also apply, um, models to understand what could the mechanisms of cost improvement be in the future. That's something that we've looked at for solar energy. And we've also done a study on nuclear fission, looking at how we can use mechanistic models to basically project forward future mechanisms of cost decline. And so it, it turns out to be kind of a complicated process because, or a complicated modeling challenge, because what we need to do is to account for many different features of the technology and, and, you know, 
aspects of the design changing at once and um, inform these models with a knowledge of what's physically possible, what the engineering limits are, and also then uh, inform it um, based on what could be economically possible and what could be possible from an investment perspective. So that's that's another approach we can take. But I agree with you that hydrogen is is a big um you know, it's 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 kind of an important it's a very important question and it's potentially a part of the solution when we talk about decarbonizing energy systems and it'll be very interesting to to follow it and study it going forward. And that that's actually something we're also looking at in my lab but it's early days. The Interchange is brought to you by Smarter Grid Solutions. Smarter Grid Solutions is a leading enterprise energy management software company that specializes in distributed energy resource management systems. Operating from New York and Glasgow, its Durham solutions are used by every distribution utility in the UK and several utilities and energy companies in the US. Internationally, Smarter Grid Solutions manages over 400 megawatts of operational clean energy assets. Cirrus Flex, Smarter Grid Solutions' virtual power plant product, optimizes the operating schedules of distributed energy resources, maximizing returns from energy markets and grid flexibility services. Cirrus Flex pulls together mixed distributed energy assets and fleets to the grid and market, delivering on-site and system value to asset owners, operators, aggregators, and traders. To learn more about Smarter Grid Solutions and the value-maximizing virtual power plant solutions offered by Cirrus Flex, visit info.smartergridsolutions.com slash interchange, or just check out the link in the show notes. All right, let's transition to talking about another area of research that you have been undertaking recently, which is around what it's going to take to go from where we are today with electric vehicle adoption to mass market adoption. And just, you know, to, I guess, set the stage. So where we are today is that in terms of the overall vehicle stock, passenger vehicle stock, electric vehicles still represent a pretty negligible share. In Europe, as far as new vehicle sales goes, uh, it is growing fast. We're up at, I think it's something like 15% of new passenger vehicle sales are electric now. In the US, it's still down around 2 3% at the moment. So we're well behind and the, the, the inflection point has not hit here in the US yet. But even in Europe, where it's going a lot faster, we, you know, 15% is not the promised land, right? Like 80, 100% is the promised land. So I'm really interested in this question of what are going to be the roadblocks as we hit these various levels of scale and various levels of penetration of electric vehicles. And I thought that the the research that you published recently um, introduced a metric, I guess, to start that I think is a really important metric as we think about these questions, which is vehicle electrification potential, VEP. Can you explain what that metric is meant to measure? And then we could talk about how to increase it. So the vehicle electrification potential is looking at the percentage of vehicles uh, in a population of vehicles, let's say for a given city or a country, that could be electrified where all of their vehicle days would be covered um, and people driving them wouldn't have to interrupt their daily activity pattern. So their vehicle days every day would be covered by the battery. They wouldn't run out of charge. They wouldn't have to delay their schedules for charging and they would be able to get to where they need to go. Uh, without changing their travel activities. And so VP measures that. So as you can see, it takes into account 
how people are moving around in cars, where they're stopping, how long they're stopping, and how much battery capacity the car has, and how that charge is being depleted as they're driving around. So all of those factors are really important for measuring VEP, which is the vehicle electrification potential. Which is super important because, you know, it, it seems clear, at least to me, that getting to you know, the vehicle electrification potential as you're measuring it, which is basically uh, what it, what is the potential for people who are not going to have to make any sacrifices from a daily activity perspective to own an electric vehicle? Like that's what it's going to take to get to really truly mainstream adoption. So high level um, findings from the study, where are we today in terms of vehicle electrification potential? Yeah. So if we take the example of Seattle, which we looked at in detail, if you install home and work charging, um, you know, so that's reliably available to people in Seattle. And again, we don't assume that they interrupt their daily activities. They just carry on as they are now in terms of moving around in their cars then we see that you could electrify just over 15% of uh, vehicles in in Seattle. Um, and that's considering the travel patterns and travel activities of people throughout the year. So it's considering uh, a situation in which um, people are using the same car, their electric vehicle to meet all of their travel needs. Um, and then if we add on, so then we can add on to that other types of, of charging capabilities. So if we add on to that, for example, fast charging on highway trips, then you see this really big jump in the vehicle electrification potential up to above 40% of cars could be electrified again without causing any inconvenience. And these numbers that I'm citing are for a low-cost electric vehicle, a relatively low-cost electric vehicle, which is the Nissan Leaf, or it could be another similar kind of vehicle with a 40-kilowatt-hour battery capacity. So you can get up to 40%. And then, you know, if you then say, okay, well, maybe people will rent a car on a couple days a year for those extra long trips, then you can get up to above 60% if we say they'll run a car for a week or maybe 10 days a year at most, then you can get up to, to 80%. Am I, am I understanding right that, okay, so what you've described then is a situation where people who have, you know, relatively inexpensive electric vehicles, which again, I think this is important because if you're just measuring people with Tesla Model S's, then you're not representing the broad swath of the population who do have at-home charging. So there's a limitation there, obviously, because a lot of people don't have access to at-home charging. But if they do have at-home charging, at-work charging, and uh, you know, kind of highway corridor DC fast charging, then we're already basically over 50%. Did I catch that right? I mean, it's, it's actually, it's closer to 40%, but it's getting close to 50%. Yeah. Got it. Which is a pretty good number. I mean, one of the things, I don't know if this comes out exactly of the research, but one of the things I've been thinking about with regard to where we're going to deploy electric vehicle charging infrastructure is, you know, the, um, kind of the early days of this market, there's been a lot of level two public EV charging. And it's not clear to me, some of that is at, you know, Whole Foods and places like that, where you might 
do a partial charge or something. Some of it's just public charging. And it's not clear to me where that fits in the long-term picture of EV charging. Given the usage patterns that people have, it feels to me like more likely for most people, you either are going to be charging at home or a workplace, or you're going to need fast charging. Do you have any conclusions on whether that public charging needs to be fast charging, like level three type fast charging in order for it to significantly increase increase um, VEP? I think it's really important for, there's a couple types of public charging. So one type of public charging is actually for people when they're at home. And so, you know, we, there needs many people, as you mentioned, don't have access to off street parking. So they are, they're parking when they're at home, they're parking in public areas on public streets or in parking lots. And so having charging available in residential neighborhoods is important. And those chargers don't nece- necessarily have to be the fast charging variety. But then when we're looking at public chargers that are available on highways, for example, it's very helpful if those are the fast charging, you know, if those are fast chargers. And in fact, I mean, the other thing is that where you put those public chargers is critical. And it, from our research, you know, we see that putting those public chargers as fast chargers along highways can be super impactful. If you put them at in random other public spots, like at the mall or the grocery store, I'm not saying that that's not going to be helpful, but it's not as predictably helpful. So in this study, you know, I was really interested in understanding, like, what can we predict today so that people could have confidence that, okay, you know, assuming where I live, there's this charging infrastructure available. I can envision where I'm going to charge and, you know, I will reliably be able to meet my driving needs. That's sort of what we're aiming for with this research is to understand that. And for that, this combination of home charging, it doesn't have to be super fast, but this is home charging, including in public areas. Um, so public chargers in residential areas, work charging, as well as highway fast charging. And then also some overnight public charging at hotels and other places where people may, may stop overnight. That combination can be, you know, really impactful. You can get for these, for a, a, a low cost electric vehicle, you can, you know, get up to close to 50% of vehicles electrified. And then, you know, if you, yeah. So, I mean, those, those numbers are, are pretty impressive, I think. And, and you could get even higher if, we make it easy for people to rent long range vehicles on a few days out of the year as well. In addition to that. Getting back then to the first conversation that we had about improvements in battery technology. I mean, clearly over the next, over the coming years, um, we will be seeing improved, continued improvements at, at some pace, perhaps at the same pace that you've measured historically, or perhaps not. But at some pace, we will be continuing to see lower cost batteries, higher energy density batteries and batteries that are capable of charging and discharging faster. And so on on basically all of these metrics, there will be continued improvement. I guess my question is the degree to which improvements in battery technology will solve some of these problems on their own versus, look, even if we get significant improvements from a battery technology perspective, we still are going to need to deploy a lot more charging infrastructure 
whether it be in residential areas or on highways? Yeah, I mean, improving batteries and, and making it faster to charge batteries, you know, either having fast charging batteries themselves or super fast charging stations, all of that's going to help. I would say, though, that a, a couple things, I think those improvements are, we can think of those as you know, let's say we, we double the, um, energy density of the battery. So we can double the, the charge of, of, and, and the, the, um, energy capacity of the battery for an electric car. That's going to help. But if everybody has home charging available where they're naturally stopping, you know, every day for seven hours versus at the grocery store where they're maybe stopping for 15 minutes, the difference in the effectiveness there is going to be several fold greater. You know, it's a difference of, you know, 50, less than one hour and seven hours. It's more than seven times the impact is one way to think about it. Whereas if we wait for seven fold improvement in batteries and other technologies, you know, that's, that's going to take some time. And, and I think those improvements will occur, but being strategic about where we install charging infrastructure and the types of chargers, the power of those chargers, how fast they are being strategic about those investments. Those are decisions that we can make today and immediately have a huge impact. Um, and there's also an equity consideration there because with these newer technologies, the highest battery capacities, the fastest charging, Batteries, they, t they will tend to be available more to wealthy customers. Whereas if you're very strategic about incentivizing, um, let's say the government is incentivizing innovation in, in charging business models and where charging is installed, you could potentially make the, these improvements available to everyone in a much more equitable way immediately and also reduce emissions in the near term much faster. So I think it's it's important to be working along all of these dimensions, improving the technology, but but also doing everything we can today to make this technology that we have available to us just be smart about how we're using it. So stepping back is your is your takeaway from this research around what it will take to bring EVs to the next level, is it fundamentally optimistic in the sense that you you look at what it will take to get to various levels of VEP and you say, you know, I think we're on track to do that at a pace at which we want to deploy EVs here in, in the US? Or is it a call to action in the sense of like, we're far behind where we would need to be. We need to solve a bunch of these problems in order to hit mainstream status. I mean, I would say that I'm optimistic about the potential for rapid growth in electric vehicle adoption and the fact that we have a number of really big announcements, you know, in terms of, um, you know, car companies that are committing to phasing out internal combustion engine vehicles. I think that's really important. Uh, the technology is there, as we found in our study. If you're strategic about where you put charging infrastructure, you can enable, you know, entire populations to turn to and adopt electric vehicles. So I feel that there's a lot that we can do, but I really can't emphasize enough how important it is to 
to be strategic, you know, putting a charger in one place versus another can have a dramatically different impact. And so we need to take that into account and, you know, make sure that our dollars, uh, public dollars go as far as they can and also provide incentives for innovation in the private sector, um, which, you know, can innovate in terms of business models to allow for uh, elect- electric vehicle charging and business models that are sustainable. So I think all of that's really important. So, you know, bottom line, I am optimistic, but there's still more work to do. Jessica Transick is an associate professor at the Institute for Data Systems and Society at MIT. Jessica, thank you so much for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great chatting with you. The Interchange is produced by Postscript Audio. Daniel Waldorf is our senior producer. Stephen Lacey is our executive producer. What did you think of the conversation? Tweet at us at at Interchange Show or send us an email to contact at postscriptaudio.com. Give us a rating, share it with a friend. It helps other people learn about the show. We get lots of great feedback from listeners about how valuable they find it and occasionally how terrible they find it as well. We appreciate both kinds of feedback. I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange. Interchange.